are now listening to the July 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screw Tape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screw Tape Letters. everyone, we have been sharing the contents of the book The Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. As mentioned before, this book features two devils, the seasoned devil named Screwtape and a novice devil named Wormwood who happens to be Screwtape's nephew. The veteran devil Screwtape writes letters to his nephew to help him develop into a skilled devil. In the book, Screwtape advises him on how to guide their patient, which refers to the human to whom each devil is assigned. Also, Please note that the term enemy refers to Christ since the letters are written from the devil's perspective. In our previous discussion, we observe how the experienced Uncle Devil Screwtape encourages his nephew to create divisions among the believers by causing them to misunderstand, hate, and condemn each other even as they know and try to live by the Bible. In this way, their lives would become hypocritical. In his fourth letter to Wormwood, Screwtape advises him on prayer. What kind of advice will he give? We might think he would tell him the trade secrets on how to prevent humans from praying altogether. In fact, that is not the case. Instead, Screwtape gives his nephew some surprising advices to make human pray, but in the wrong way. Screwtape offers three instructions. He urges as the first of his instructions that the patient needs to be guided to engage in a prayer that seems solemn but is superficial. If the patient had moved away from church but just returned to Jesus, Wormwood is encouraged to entice the patients to recall the common phraseologies used in prayers without much meaning and to utter those words like a parrot. The patient, however, may then realize that he should not pray like that. At that point, the patient would resolve not to pray in such a stereotypical way like he used to. At this point, Wormwood is told to let the patient be and just observe what happens. In most cases, new believers would usually end up focusing on themselves when they pray, their own thoughts, and their own feelings. They get hung up on their own will and not God's. From our perspective, what these instructions from Screwtape means is that all believers need training in prayers. In fact, even if we are not new believers, we often overlook the fact that we need to train ourselves in prayer. Just believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior does not mean we become true prayer warrior overnight. Honest, sincere, and unhindered prayers to the Lord without any pretense must actually be trained regularly, repeatedly, and with humility. Such training will create a habit of focusing on God's divine will and His presence. Please remember that even Jesus found a quiet place to pray regularly. The second instruction from Screwtape is to help the patient not to focus on Jesus who receives prayer, but to turn his gaze back on himself as he prays. This way, the patient can pray by listing his own emotions, situations, and thoughts. When this happens successfully, the patient is not really praying to God. However, by going through the motions, the patient develops the false sense that he is praying and may even feel as if he is closely connected with God. He may even imagine he has received a response from God. 
The devil is cunning and skilled in manipulation. If we become used to this type of prayer habit, we may forget to double-check whether we are praying incorrectly or whether the response we receive from God is correct. This is because we think we are praying and develop a false sense that we are communicating with the Lord. The third instruction from Screwtape is to guide the patient to not pray to God who created this world and everything in it, but to an imaginary God that the patient has created and defined in his head. In other words, a good devil should get its patients to pray to a made-up God that is not the true God. Are we praying by focusing more on our desires and even imagine the false responses to such prayers? That would be like talking to something that is not God. Are we making judgments and decisions on our own, presuming this is what God will like, without waiting for the real responses from God? The devil constantly deceives, distorts, and manipulates us to engage in these type of misguided prayers. He blocks us from praying entirely to God and continuously creates obstacles so that we cannot pray properly. Our goal should be to pray with our souls stripped entirely bare before God. What does it mean to pray with a naked soul? We can find a clue in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, who disobeyed God's command and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, became aware of their nakedness and sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. Having sinned, they felt afraid and hid in the garden when they heard the Lord God walking in the garden. God called out to Adam, Where are you? And Adam, feeling ashamed and in a difficult position, did not offer a straight answer to God's question by revealing his location. But instead, he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God asked him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam then proceeded to make excuses and even blamed Eve for his sin. These two responses from Adam make us realize that we must understand God's word accurately, what he is saying, what questions he is asking, and respond honestly, regardless of our own feelings or thoughts. Listening to God's word is a priority, and we must answer accordingly. If God were to ask, what do you think, or how do you feel, we should respond with our honest thoughts and feelings. I sometimes think of what might have happened if Adam answered God honestly and without focusing on himself. When God asked, did you eat the fruit? He might have acknowledged, yes, I have eaten, and then proceeded to confess how he disobeyed God's command and asked for forgiveness. He could have said, Father, please forgive me. Please forgive both of us, Eve and me. Would not these responses equate to praying with the naked soul? Prayer begins with clearly knowing who God is in His Word and thoroughly understanding what kind of sinner I am. Prayer offered with a poor spirit and a distressed heart cannot be one-sided, nor can it be a prayer that focuses only on my emotions, my situation, and my thoughts. If we have the desire to enter the chamber of God's presence and have a deep and secret conversation that only He would know, start approaching the God the Father with a humble and respectful attitude. You might do that at a set time. And be grateful that He has saved sinners like us from death, and He has called us His children. Praise the Father's love. Thank Him for giving us another chance to repent today, confess our sins, and ask for forgiveness. Request to hear His thoughts and heart. We must listen to His word. 
Remember that God speaks in various ways through different channels such as the Bible, worship, people, the environment, nature, or even some events. Therefore, open your eyes, ears, and heart in every aspect of your life and pray to constantly focusing on God. And ask to discern His response. Concentrate on our Abba Father who receives our prayers. We must examine whether the sender of our prayers is not ourselves but God the Father. We should recall God received the prayer of a tax collector who prostrated himself before his master. If we clearly understand this relationship, we will seek to hear his word before we say anything. We will seek his will, not ours. In closing, I will read an excerpt from the fourth letter of Screwtape. Whenever they are tending to the enemy himself, we are defeated, but there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him towards themselves, keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings there by the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice that this is what they are doing. When they meant to pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling, and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, You Were Made for Greatness. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in other locations across our city, as well as those online who are not able to be with us in person today. It's really good to be together around God's Word, in God's worship. And I should add, it was really good to see so many of you in, from all of our locations on Friday night for late night prayer and particularly for those of you who were able to be there until a little after midnight and you experienced what we did, there, there's something that happens that only comes after seeking God together for four hours that just can't be replicated in another way. And I, I pray that the spirit and the zeal and the freedom in seeking God and shouting and praying and lifting our hands and being silent and bowing down on the ground that marks these Friday nights will work its way more and more into our Sunday mornings. Let's worship God fearfully and freely. And as a reminder, if someone praise or says something you agree with, you are free at any point to say amen, amen. or that's right, or yes, Lord, or yeah, any number of other appropriate <laughs> phrases. Uh, you're even free to shout it if you would like. So I love being in the church together encountering God. So I'd like to start today by asking you a question, and I'll put it up here on the screen. Do you want to be great? So I'm not talking about being great at this or that thing. I'm talking about your life. You want to be great in life. And I think for many of us, we're not quite sure how to answer that question, especially if you ask us this publicly, because... Well, we don't want to be prideful or self-centered and to say, yeah, I want to be great. Kind of seems, is that prideful or self-centered? At the same time, to say no doesn't sound like that great of an answer either. For example, if you're a parent, do you want to be a great parent for your kids? Or do you want to be, ah, okay, parent for all of us who are children? Do you want to be great kids? Or do you want somebody to look at you and say, not a great kid? Think of our friendships. Do you want to be a mediocre friend or a great friend? Or think about your profession. I don't want to be a lame pastor. I'm guessing you don't want to be lame at your job either. So do we want to be great at the vocation God has called us to? Or is that prideful? I want to contend today that God made you for greatness. Amen. I want to show you in God's word that God wants you 
to be great. That God has made your life to be significant. And that God wants you to come to the end of your life and feel that you've spent your life in great ways. The problem is, sin has seriously warped our view of greatness and our desire for greatness in ways that lead to everything from self-exaltation to, surprisingly, self-degradation. A warped view of greatness can lead us to pride and can also lead us to despair and depression. And I want to show you today how Jesus redefines greatness and calls you to it. And not just calls you to it, but how Jesus empowers you to be what God has created you to be, truly great. So read with me in our next passage in the book of Mark, starting in chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there, this is talking about the disciples, and passed through Galilee. And he, talking about Jesus, did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. So we should pause here and note. This is the second time in the book of Mark that we see Jesus predicting his suffering and his death and his resurrection. First time, if you look at the very end of chapter 8, verse 31. And I just want to point out a couple of important things, kind of the side note here. These are not the main truths of the whole passage we're looking at, but they are truths that we see all over the Bible that are worth noting here. I'll put them on the screen. First, see divine sovereignty and human responsibility in these verses. So Jesus says, I am going to be delivered. So that's passive voice, something that's going to happen to Jesus, which begs the question, who is going to deliver Jesus? And some would say this is a reference to Judas, who would betray Jesus. And he absolutely played a part in delivering Jesus over. But the Bible teaches that ultimately, God the Father was delivering over his son to die. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 11 in the same chapter says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. Romans 3.25 says, God has presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Acts chapter 4 verse 28 describes the cross as what God's hand and God's plan predestined to take place. Even John 3.16 makes clear, God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die. So God was sovereign, ultimately in control over the death of Jesus. And at the same time, people were responsible. They will kill him. Judas will betray him. So just remember, whenever we think about sin and evil in the world, including the most evil act in all of history, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God, people are responsible. Yet God is sovereign. God is always ultimately in control. 
even as we are making real, genuine choices for which we are responsible to him. This is the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we see all over Scripture. It actually leads to the second thing we see here that I want to note. See divine love and human sinfulness on display in these verses. And specifically in this play on words. Did you notice it? Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, how he is God in the flesh, in human form as man, he's going to be delivered into the hands of what? Men. Mankind. So see divine love, the Son of Man, that God would come to humanity, become man in Jesus, specifically to be killed by the men and women he comes to save. The Son of Man given into the hands of men. If you're visiting with us today or exploring Christianity, this is the most humbling and most happy news in all the world. That we as men and women have all sinned against God and deserve eternal separation and judgment before God. But God loves you and me so much that he gave his son, Jesus, to live the life we could not live, a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that anyone anywhere who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all your sin and restored to relationship with God for eternal life. We invite you to receive His divine love in your sinful life. If you have never done so today. So Jesus is telling his disciples here why he came, how much he loves them. But verse 32 says they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him and were not told why they were afraid until we learn what was really on their minds in the next verse. 33 says they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What a scene. And it makes me think of all the times we have, well, I'm not even going to include you, all the times I, particularly as a kid, did something dumb or wrong or dumb and wrong. And my mom or dad asked me a simple question about what I was doing. And as soon as the words came out of their mouth, I thought, oh no. And I wanted to run and hide. So here Jesus asks, so what were you guys talking about? And nobody says anything. They kept silent. Why? Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
Jesus has just told him he's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. That's, I think, worth talking about. And they're talking about who's, who's greater in our group. And here we see how sin corrupts our quest for greatness. Let's just put ourselves in these disciples' shoes and imagine how the conversation may have gone. In light of what Jesus just shared, specifically about his death, maybe they weren't listening to the last part. Maybe they're wondering, okay, if he's going to die, who's next in line in this group? Peter, James, and John had just been with Jesus at the transfiguration at the beginning of this chapter. So in their minds, they were obviously at the top of the list. And Peter is the one who confessed Jesus as the Messiah at the end of the previous chapter. So he may have been saying, guys, it's clearly me. To which James and John, known as sons of thunder, may have reminded Peter that not long after that confession, Jesus called him Satan. Meanwhile, the other disciples are thinking, well, you guys are always running your mouths. We're out here working. And Jesus is overhearing all of this, this argument about who is the greatest. And this scene, and specifically this phrase, reveals, it exposes the sin-corrupted quest for greatness, not just in them, but in us. In at least two ways, and I really want to encourage us to think not just about how we see the sinful distortion in these disciples, but how we see this sinful distortion in our lives. In at least two ways. One, we compare ourselves with others. Notice the emphasis is not, it's not on who's great, but on who's the greatest. It's a word that requires comparison, right? In order to be the greatest, others must be less great. Do you see this? How comparison is at the root of their sinful quest for greatness. And maybe ours? It's what I've mentioned before that C.S. Lewis calls the great sin in mere Christianity. The one vice, he writes, of which no person in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when you see it in someone else and which we are most unconscious of in ourselves. And the vice is pride. And C.S. Lewis argues that pride is essentially competitive, competitive by its very nature. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having, having it, more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Makes sense, doesn't it? You may think you're proud because you're talented, but when you meet someone who's more talented than you, you're not really proud anymore. Suddenly you don't find the pleasure you once had in your talents because your pleasure was not in your talents. It was in having more talent than the next person and being above the rest. And in the opposite direction, pride also reveals itself in the despair 
that comes when you feel like you're below the rest. Despair that creeps in when you think, I'm not as good as them. How easy is it for us to look at others' lives, whether in person or on social media, and think, they have what I want. I wish I was as fill-in-the-blank as them. They're a better person than me, parent than me, student than me, a better athlete than me. They're smarter, better looking, more talented, more put together, more, and it goes on and on. This constant comparison of ourselves with others. We compare ourselves with others and we crave approval from others. Don't seek or settle for the approval of others when your reward is found in relationship with the God who's the greatest above all. So here is the equation for true greatness. True greatness is lowly service on earth plus glory to God in heaven. I want you just to look at that equation. And it makes sense, doesn't it, on every level. Lowly service, giving your life, putting others before you, particularly those who can do the least for you, in a way that brings glory to God above you. Think about a passage that just so happens to be in our church's Bible reading plan today. In Matthew 22, what does Jesus say is the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Lowly service on earth, love your neighbor neighbor as yourself. Glory to God in heaven, love him with everything you have. And isn't this equation the gospel? Is this not Jesus? Philippians chapter 2, what we walk through at Christmas, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross for undeserving sinners, lowly service on earth. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. Lowly service on earth, glory to God in heaven. Jesus is true greatness. So, I come back to the question in your life. Do you want to be great? And I hope you hear God saying through his word to you right now, I want this for you. I made you for greatness. But not the way the world defines it. Not through comparing yourself with others and craving approval from others. God is saying, I sent my son to free you from those things. 
You do not have to live comparing yourself with everybody else and craving approval from anybody else. When God has created you for real, true greatness, and not just created you for this, but when you put your trust in Him, Jesus is Lord of your life, His Spirit dwells in you, and He empowers you to live like this, to be selfless in serving others, to be a servant to all, even the seemingly insignificant as you are satisfied, as you experience supernatural joy and reward in relationship with the God whose greatness knows no end. So before we close, with this question before us, I want to specifically affirm you and challenge you in a way that I hope just gives us a moment to let God, through his word, now, by his Holy Spirit, apply it in our hearts and lives. And I know there are so many people listening right now. I don't presume to be able to know how it applies in every single person's life. But just, I was just praying through, okay, how might this apply across this group gathered right now? May the Holy Spirit apply this word in affirming and challenging ways. Specifically, in light of this picture of a child in Mark chapter 9, I hope, parents today, you are affirmed in the countless things you do selflessly for your children. I I would add even beyond that, and I would say to children of any age, and in particular, single parents, parents of children with special needs, foster parents, I could go on with other especially challenging parenting situations on top of normally challenging parenting situations. You know the ways you're serving your family right now and hear God saying he knows and he sees and he affirms you as great. Hear that, feel that, be encouraged by God today. His affirmation of you as a mom or a dad. And there are so many other examples I could go through, whether it's those of you who serve in children's or student or access special needs ministries in the church, in our community, or beyond children. Those of you who serve in many different ways, all your work for justice on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, the abused, the displaced, refugees, orphans, widows, and all the ways you serve selflessly day in and day out in your vocation for the good of society, and all the ways that you are giving sacrificially and quietly to the church for the glory of God here and among the nations. Just consider right now, any and every way, that by God's grace in you, you are serving others as you're satisfied in God and be affirmed by God right now. This is great. By the power and the grace of God in you, you are great. So keep going. Do not grow weary in doing good in your life. Pursue true greatness in all of these ways and more. Which then leads to the challenge. 
I exhort you to also take a moment and consider any ways that God by his spirit may be leading you to pursue greatness more in your life. And maybe that means starting by confessing the ways you compare yourself with others, crave approval from others, or to the extent that you're doing any of the things I just mentioned in your life or family or work or wherever. Maybe this means checking your motives to make sure you are serving selflessly and you're truly satisfied in simply having God. I pray that God will cleanse and transform your motives. I would ask that you pray for me in that way, that I would be delivered from comparison with others or craving approval from others. Pray that my life would not be marked by how what size church I pastor, books I write, that I would pastor, write, love, serve this church, my family, others selflessly with a deep desire to decrease while others increase to the glory of Jesus. If you want to be great, consider caring for toddlers or teaching the Bible to teenagers. I've heard it said different church conferences and places. There are so many gifted, talented people in the church. They're successful in business. And that's certainly true in this church family. So it's said, we need to come up with more ways for them to serve than just changing diapers or teaching kids. And I agree in one sense. There are many ways that people who are successful in the world can and should use their gifts for the building up of the church and the spread of the gospel in the world. Yes, But the moment we think it's too low or menial to serve children is the moment we've lost sight of what it means to follow Jesus in the first place. At least here at Tyson's right now, we're having to turn away children in our children's ministries because we don't have enough volunteers. And simply put, brothers and sisters in Christ, this should not be so among us. May children's and student ministries at all of our locations be overflowing with followers of Jesus, eagerly and selflessly serving the next generation. And finally, I should add, I don't think it's a coincidence that we would be in this text on this exact day when 50 years ago, January 22nd, 1973, Roe v. Wade made abortion legal in our country, leading to the death of millions upon millions of children in the years that followed. And obviously there has been a lot of discussion about that over this last year, and changes and increased debate. I was speaking at a Stand for Life conference downtown this week, and many March for Life in our city. We clearly still have a long way to go in serving children in the womb, and their moms and their dads. Because the reasons people want to have abortions are still there. So let us serve, work selflessly for just laws and leaders and policies and practices that protect children in the womb and provide for women and men in poverty that address housing healthcare, education, and economic challenges among parents in need. Let's foster 
and adopt children in need as we come alongside families in need. And let's do it all in the name of Jesus. Do you want to be great based on what we've just heard and seen in God's word? I hope the answer to that question in your heart is a resounding yes. Because God has made you to be great in otherworldly ways. So let's throw aside comparison with others and craving approval from others in this world. And let's serve selflessly in Jesus' name out of the overflow of satisfaction in our relationship with the one and only great God. Will you bow your heads with me all across this room and other locations, others watching online? Just to pause the busyness of our lives and quiet before God and to ask, first and foremost, do you know this one and only great God? Are you in relationship with Him? Because you have placed your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to reconcile you to Him. And if the answer to that question in your heart is not a resounding yes, I invite you Today, this moment, make this the moment when you say to God, yes, I want to be all you've created me to be. And I know I've sinned against you. Just pray this to God in your heart. Say, I know I've sinned against you, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. Today, I turn from my sin and I put my trust in your love for me and you as the Lord of my life. When you pray that, express that to God. He forgives you of your sin and he fills you with his spirit, draws you in a relationship with him. And so for all who are in relationship with him, who have his spirit inside of you, we just pray together, God, make us great in all the ways that matter most. And pray that over every single person. Then the sound of my voice, even as I pray that over my own life, God, help us to live free from competition with others, craving approval from others. Pray for contentment in selflessly serving others, satisfaction in simply having you as our reward. And I say that, simply having you. What a reward. God, we praise you that you're our reward. We don't want any other reward. We don't need any other reward. We have you. We love you. We glorify you. So help us. Help us to be last of all and servant of all in our lives, our families, and our workplaces, and in the city, among the nations, and ways. Help us to lowly service on earth in your name. Have the overflow of your spirit in us in ways that bring all glory to your name. In Jesus' name, 
We pray this. And all God's people said it.
the following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Indeed, in chapter 2, verse 13, and I've read it a couple times, we see that the Thessalonians were chosen from the beginning for a salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We believe in the one who is the way and the truth and the life, and we believe in his truth. Jesus said his word is truth. He shared when he prayed to the Father, sanctify them, speaking of believers, in thy word. Thy word is truth. So their faith in Jesus and what he has declared was flourishing beyond measure. That's an amazing thought. And guess what? If you see someone whose faith in Jesus is flourishing beyond measure, you're going to get excited about that. You're going to be encouraged. Because there's not a lot of faith out there. There's a lot of faith talk, but not a lot of genuine trust in Jesus. Believing what he says, no matter what you feel or see, we walk by faith, not by sight. And these Thessalonians were real believers, not make-believers. They were real believers. Yes, they had troubles. Yes, they had some sin that they needed to deal with. But they were attempting to trust the Lord, and their faith was growing, flourishing abundantly. He says, it's superabounding in growth, so much so we are indebted to give praise to God. We have to. we got to give praise to God because it is absolutely amazing what he is doing in your lives. Now, remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If you've got sin in the way, forget it. But you need to confess sin and allow his word to work in your heart. He's saying your faith is flourishing beyond measure. So I ask you, is your faith growing or is it even superabounding? Are you trusting Christ more and more and more? Or are you faltering and focusing on the things of this life and trusting in self and others or whatever you might think might happen? Is your faith superabounding? You see, as things get more difficult, and it was for them, we're seeing that their faith was genuine. And it obligated Paul, and it obligates us if we see it and as we see it to give praise and thanks to God. Now, how is it we grow in respect to salvation? How do we grow in faith? How would our faith superabound? Well, the reality is we need to put off sin and receive the word of God. You can receive the word of God all day long, but if you don't put off sin, you're not going to hear it. You're going to be like the guy who looks in the mirror and sees himself on what's wrong. The Bible's revealed that, but walks away and forgets. You're going to be a hearer and not a doer. But you need to set aside sin. James 1.21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility... That means I believe what God is saying and I'm humbling myself to receive it and I'm confessing my sin. Receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. First Peter chapter two, verse one. Therefore putting aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander, putting aside sin, I confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Putting it aside, he says, like newborn babes, he says, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Our salvation is by faith, right, in Jesus Christ, through his word working in our hearts, and then he grows us in the same manner. 
We saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, that it is the word of God which performs its work in you. Yes, you need to be in the word of God. The one who meditates on it day and night will be like a tree firmly planted, right? Stable, fed, eternal in a sense, with leaves that never fade, Psalm 1. But you've got to confess sin. You've got to see yourself rightly. You've got to be teachable. You've got to be reprovable. We saw that in Psalm 50 earlier that was read. Reprovable, not one who rejects that, but is teachable. One pastor writes, the apostle painted a picture of abundant and above normal growth of a fruit-bearing tree. Spiritual growth is the work of God accomplished through the preaching of the word in the midst of the trials of life through the prayer of the saints. I'd agree with that. So then the Thessalonians have an ever-increasing faith that demands and is worthy of thanksgiving to God. Praise the Lord. And when you see that in your brothers and sisters, be thanking God for their increased faith. It's worthy of it. It's worthy. What God is doing in their lives is worthy of praise to the Lord. And that brings Him glory, not us. So we see here, This primary manifestation of faith, actually. You say, what is faith? What does it look like? Well, we see in John 15, the Lord Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? But faith is going to manifest in something. A genuine faith is going to work. It's going to obey the Lord. Genuine faith is going to manifest in a relationship where one trusts the Lord and obeys the Lord. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Hey, that hymn writer got that right. Look at John 15. John 15. Faith is going to manifest, as we're going to see, in a love for one another and obedience. It's going to manifest. And every increasing faith is not personal and separate from the body of Christ. It doesn't isolate. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. That's what the Lord desires. And that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment. What? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than one will lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You see, when we trust in the Lord God, it's going to manifest in obedience to the Lord God. When we believe what he said, then we're going to obey him by his spirit in his power. This statement comes after he says, abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's trusting, relying in Christ. And so if I rely in Christ, I'm going to then manifest that faith by obeying him. Look at 1 John. And we're going to see this in our passage also, that it has to do with the love of the body of Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his commandment, John speaking of the Lord's commandment, that we what? Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the commandment, okay? And what? Love one another, just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. You see, when we rest in Christ, we're going to have a different demeanor. His word will work in our hearts. His spirit will empower us to change our minds, our thoughts, that we would follow him and obey him. Our minds renewed. 
He says here, and we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Abiding in Christ, trusting in him, faith, right? What's the first fruit? Love. The first fruit of resting in Christ is love. Look a little further down in 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 9. By this the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And how do you know if you're loving the brethren? How do you know if I'm loving? How do I know? Is it going to the food bank? Is it doing this and that? Is it just simply tasks? The world and the worldly church says love is doing these specific things for the poor, whatever it might be. Not saying we don't help those in need. But what is love? How do you know as a believer that I'm trusting Christ and from that trust I'm loving? How do I know? Look up in 1 John 5, 1 John 5. Whoever believes, notice the idea of faith here. This is sandwiched in faith, by the way, as we read through this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Now you think he's speaking of Jesus. Well, no, he's speaking of the brothers and sisters. Notice what he says. By this we know that we love the children of God. Here's how I can know I love you. Here's how you can know if you love me, and vice versa, and we love each other. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, we see his desires higher than ours. That's love, right? We care about him more than we care about ourselves. We care about his will more than ours. And he says here, and observe or keep his commandments. That's not the Ten Commandments, not the same word. It's commands. You know, disciples, Matthew 28, were to baptize, that's just firm their saved, then teach them all that Jesus did and said, that they would obey him, right? So you can know you love the body of Christ when you're obeying Christ in relationship to the body of Christ. You see, if Jesus says through his word, we're to be forgiving, if I don't forgive, I'm not loving you. I'm not obeying him. Jesus said in his word, love covers a multitude of sins. If I'm holding on to stuff, I'm not loving you. Jesus said in his word, through presumption comes much strife. If I'm presuming, I'm not loving you. If I'm trusting him and allowing his word to work through me, then it's going to manifest in a genuine love for you. So we can see that. So the evidence of genuine faith is, I believe, primarily love, which is manifest in obedience to his command. So he's saying, your faith is superabounding. You are trusting Christ. And the evidence, I believe, is the love here. Notice what he says back in our passage. He says, We ought always to give thanks to you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love for each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Now you say, yes, I know that love is a result or a manifestation of faith. You know, but it doesn't really say it. it just says faith and love here. Well, later on, he's going to say, we speak proudly to the churches of your perseverance and faith. He doesn't say love. Faith includes that. He says the love. That's agape love, self-sacrificial love. It's what we saw in First John earlier. The love you have towards one another. It's personal. You cannot stay away from the body of Christ and say you love the body of Christ. Because you love yourself, because you don't want to go through the difficulty of relationships, because people are sinners. 
He who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against sound wisdom. Proverbs 18.1. So he says here, the love which each of you have towards one another. He says it grows ever greater. It's personal and it grows ever greater. The word translated here, ever greater, basically speaks of overflowing. So your faith is growing like a plant, but it's superabounding, and your love is at the brim and it's flowing over. And Paul says basically we were obligated. It's only fitting and only worthy to give continual thanks to God for these things. We're obligated. Your faith and love is worthy of praise to the Lord because it is God who brings that about. Faith comes from hearing, right? It is God, and we trust in him that loves through us. His character is manifest in us. It's not like we were before we were saved. His character is manifest in us towards one another. Now, we saw previously in First Thessalonians that they had love. It's a genuine manifestation. They did. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul constantly bore in mind their work of faith and labor of love. Hey, they did. They were genuine. But it's increasing here. We see in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians that they didn't need to be taught about love because God taught them to love one another, right? We see in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he says here in chapter 3, and I'll read this for you, chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 11. And the reason why this is so important is, guess what? They were loving, but Paul is going to pray that they would superabound in their love. And guess what happens? It's answered. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may our Lord cause you to what? Increase and abound in love for one another. And for all men, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He prayed back then, a couple of months earlier, may God do this. And guess what? He's done it. And we are obligated, obligated, because your faith and your love is worthy of praise to God. Brothers and sisters, when your heart is tuned to hear the word of God, to trust in him and obey him, when you trust in Jesus more and more, when your faith increases, your love will also overflow for one another. And God will get all the glory and praise. But if you find yourself selfishly separating from brothers and sisters, and not hypocritically hanging out, but selfishly separating, I would posit to you that your faith is faltering because your love is missing the evidence of faith. And what's the big problem? Sin is in the way. And sin starts with an S, and so does self, and that's usually how it's connected. Confess your sin, get into the Word of God, allow God to renew your mind, believe what He has said, trust in Christ, abide in Him, and allow His Spirit to work out that fruit, which is love. And that will be manifest in obeying God towards one another. If you're not obeying God's Word towards your spouse, you're not exhibiting Christ's love towards your spouse. If you're not obeying God's word towards your work, in a sense, in terms of you're not exhibiting his love even in that context, when we obey the Lord God, it's going to be manifest, especially within the context of the body of Christ. So he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, it's worthy. 
because your faith is greatly enlarged. It's growing and abounding. And the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. It's actually that word, as I said, is overflowing. Hey, if you're a believer and you see that, it's going to cause you to praise God. You see an increasing, growing, abounding faith. You see an overflowing love. You're going to go, Lord God, we praise you. You are so good. You're so gracious. Look at the work you're doing in them. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your work in them. Wow. And guess what? It's a great encouragement in the midst of difficulties. When you're suffering and you see the faith and love of true believers, it's an encouragement. It's encouragement to endure. It's encouragement to trust Christ. It's encouragement to walk out and step out in the context of love. So then we see it because of their faith flourishing beyond measure and their love for one another overflowing in Christ. We're obligated to thank God. Now, some of you might say, okay, well, it's easy to trust God when things are going good. But when things are bad, like in my life, it's much harder to trust God. Well, I'd say to you, you're not thinking correctly. Because if you continue, and as we will continue looking at these Thessalonians, they were suffering greatly. They were suffering greatly. They were in persecution and difficulty and affliction beyond what we have experienced. And so we're going to see that their faith was ever increasing in the context of difficult suffering for following Jesus. And I believe we're going to see that along with this increasing faith bringing continual thankfulness, we're going to see that their faith endured and brought about blessing and encouragement to others to trust God likewise. Look at verse 3 again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and your love for each of you towards one another grows ever greater. Therefore, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Do you notice the term therefore in verse 4? Now, in Greek, there are several different words that can be and are translated therefore. They have a little different nuance in each one. This one here, hosta, basically is a coordinating conjunction, and it expresses a consequence or a result. That's why the New King James translates it so that, and that's a good translation too. Therefore, or so that. The logical consequence of this is this. You see what I'm saying? That's what verse 4 is about. It is the logical consequence of giving praise to God for what their faith and their love has manifest and is worthy of that praise. So that. So Paul is saying, because your faith is flourishing abundantly and your love for each other is overflowing, it is worthy of continual thanks to God and we are obligated to do so, so that, or with the result that we ourselves, that's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, we talked about them last week, speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Now, where were they? They were in Corinth. So there's obviously the church in Corinth, but there's churches there, the churches of God. The body of Christ is the church. For your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and all your afflictions which you endure. He says at this point we find the Apostle Paul boasting boasting to the churches of God about the Thessalonians' perseverance and faith. And this faith is what he spoke of in verse 3 and manifest also in love. And this perseverance and faith in the middle of verse 4 is in the midst of something. All your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. 
take your truth planted deep in us shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith speak O Lord and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory teach us Lord full of now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.